a team from the University of Michigan did some really rigorous research looking at um, basically the impact of, of donors choose over several years from 2012 to 2018 um, in the state of Pennsylvania in particular and found a causative link between getting funded and one student outcome, so greater student learning, as well as maybe even less surprisingly, uh, teacher satisfaction. And so a dramatic impact on the tendency of teachers to stay in the classroom when they get the resources that they need. According to the 2021 teacher spending survey, on average, teachers spent $750 of their own money on learning materials each year, with 30% of teachers stating they spend $1,000 or more. Why are teachers having to pay more and more out of pocket for classroom materials? How can teachers get the supplies they need more efficiently? Do teachers in low-income communities need different kinds of support? And what can we do to combat inequity in school funding? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Alex Garrier to find out. Alex Garrier is the CEO of Donors Choose, a nonprofit organization that connects donors to public school teachers who need materials for their classrooms and students. With firsthand experience in teaching and an extensive background in crowdfunding and finance, Alex has a unique perspective on classroom funding. He joins us today to discuss how we can support our nation's teachers. Alex, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's such a pleasure to join you here. You got this bug to help teachers. Um, what drew you to that work? Uh, I am the product of uh, public schools in New Haven. I, I went to New Haven Public Schools K through 12. I'm very loyal to the city of New Haven. Um, enjoy going back and can acknowledge that, you know, that it was a public school that had uh, a fair number of challenges. And um you know, when I got to college, frankly, I found myself unprepared um, yeah. and really confronted with the different experiences that different students can have when they come, you know, from from different um, from different backgrounds. And so actually that moment, really my freshman year was the moment when I started to question, well, what am I going to do? And maybe this education uh, problem, I guess, as I saw it, was something for me uh, to, to contribute efforts to. Well, and you obviously were blessed. You, as you said, you went to public schools in New Haven. And, you know, just candidly, you mentioned New Haven had challenges. You know, it's the home of Yale University. Yeah. So, and, and there are walls around a lot of Yale. But when you leave those walls of Yale, you're in really a challenged community. Uh, it must have been a, a, a tough reality to see how celebrated Yale was on the one hand, yet within steps of the university, there are these challenges. Yeah, you know, New Haven had a lot of the challenges of sort of post-industrial, you know, uh, urban centers, um, a lot of poverty, um, quite racially diverse, um, and the presence of this amazing university that not only was a research center and brought all kinds of talent, but also art and a cultural center. And it really was in some ways two different worlds, uh, two very different worlds. One fancy Ivy League, uh, you know, Gothic architecture, and then another, um, um, you know, again, candidly uh, dangerous 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of gang violence, uh, you know, in my high school, uh, there were shootings. There was actually a shooting every year that I was there, um, of one kind or, or another. Um, yeah. And both of those realities lived on at the same time. You know, I went to a fancy school. I went to Harvard, uh, undergrad and, um, it was still a pretty rude awakening. I mean, I'll admit I went there thinking, you know, Hey, I'm kind of a big deal, you know, I've taken these classes, I was, uh, you know, at the top of class, uh, graduating. Um, and yet I, I, I got to college and realized, oh, wait a second. Uh, I really didn't have <laughs> any of the preparation that a lot of these other students are, are coming with, you know, um, including some basic stuff like how to study really and how to write and how to read and, um, and then, you know, not to mention the sort of breadth of exposure that they had as I started to uh, volunteering in an after school program that ran out of a housing project in, in Boston. And then that activity would end up being um, a major thing that I did throughout my four years. I ended up directing that program. Um, uh, and that was the beginning of really what shifted my my thoughts uh, from from academia. I can't tell you how many times, Alex, that I've spoken to valedictorians and salutatorians around the country who uh, grew up in neighborhoods similar to yours, um, and they found themselves uh, similarly situated as you, where they were a big deal in the school they went to, but they were vastly unprepared. And, and, and a lot of that, and it gets back to our conversation is about the resources that were made available for them. Yeah. Um, and I've always thought that, you know, in many schools, teachers have become adept at sometimes by force of circumstance, teach to the middle. But those who are uh, somewhat behind or those who are accelerated learners as you are really don't always get a chance to get the support they need. And, um, I'm sure that when you worked in that program while at Harvard and, and helped those young people, you could see more of those similar circumstances. Yeah, 100%. I mean, students are built to learn, okay? Um, I mean, especially, you know, take any kindergartner, first grade, no matter where they are, that is a being that is oriented to learning almost, you know, 24-7. They just have a mind that will absorb whatever is provided to them, right, in whatever environment, and the richer the environment is with different kinds of stimulus, different examples, different content, then that is exactly what they'll learn. Well, you know, um, it begs the question, actually, it provides the answer to the question of why donors choose. I mean, you you uh, work in, in finance for several years, folks like City group mm -hmm. and city core and uh mckinsey and as you said you found your way back to your passion when you took this row at donors choose um talk about why you did that and then talk about donors choose in this mission i joined a ceo in april so i'm still very new in in this role but i have been a fan of donors choose for years um it was it was founded back in 2000 and by the way, I was also a classroom teacher, so I taught high school math, um, which I mentioned only because 
in my heart of hearts, I still consider myself a high school math teacher. That's probably the <laughs> truest expression of my personality. Um, I was in the classroom um, at the same time that our founder, Charles Best, was in the classroom. Um, but I wasn't aware of, of Donor Shoes in part because it was still in New York at that time. And I had already gone to grad school by the time it started to really expand. So I was never a user of, of Donors Choose, but I was—I certainly was aware of it. And then the teachers that I had worked with um, loved to use it. And so I knew that one, it had this incredible just brand and loyalty among users that I thought was really exceptional. And actually a team from the University of Michigan did some really rigorous research looking at um, basically the impact of, of donors choose over several years from 2012 to 2018 um, in the state of Pennsylvania in particular, and found a causative link between getting funded and one student outcome. So greater student learning, as well as maybe even less surprisingly, uh, teacher satisfaction. And so a dramatic impact on the tendency of teachers to stay in the classroom when they get the resources that they need. So the impact was another thing. And then the third was over the last few years, um, a decision on the part of the leadership of donors choose, including our board, um, to focus on equity. And, and you know, I'll just give them credit because um, you know, I know that they actually started this work uh, in 2018 and 2019. So even before um the nation and in fact the world's attention turned to you know racial injustices due to uh murder of george floyd and others in june of 2020 so they were already starting to work on on this um reorientation towards equity but decided to pull out what had been implicit in the mission and make it explicit and that is that donors choose is focused on equity on racial equity on socioeconomic equity and putting that into practice so that so all these things added up the scale, the fact of this impact and the equity orientation, um, uh, you know, added up to, to make it impossible for me to say, oh, this is an incredible organization to be a part of. And, and by the way, when you talk about teacher service, just about every teacher survey conducted anywhere, any school district in America shows marginal teacher satisfaction. And even now it's gotten worse. Oh, yeah. uh, and and one of the big issues they point to is not just teachers pay, which is huge, but just the resources, the, the, the fact that teachers have to reach their pocket. You know, some say it's estimate is 750, some teachers a thousand. But there are instances where teachers reach their pocket two or $3,000 a year to supplement teacher supplies for, for students. Um, the mechanics of how you work you say you've been in 87% of these school buildings. Uh, what are the, the limits that you place on, you know, what you give to individual teachers? Imagine, you know, that you just sort of, I don't know, left the planet and then came back and we're looking around at different professions. Uh, and then here's the only one where you will send a certificated, highly educated, right? You need a not only a college degree, but then a certificate, you need training. It's critically important and you place them into the work environment with just immediately take a class and the barest of supplies, right? Where even pens and pencils, may, you may need to go out of pocket to, to buy, right? I mean, there's no other profession that is like that. So in terms of limits, you know, we try to be as open as possible. Um, and so um, 
they're able to request on uh, donors choose really all kinds of materials. So certainly sort of what you might think of as traditional um, educational supplies. So books and those sorts of materials, you know, art materials, STEM equipment, but technology for the class, furniture for the class, trips, you know, school trips and also professional development for themselves. We don't then send cash to the teacher, but actually those resources, those supplies, et cetera, we actually procure ourselves through yeah. our partnerships with lots yeah. of vendors. So, so Alex, let me ask you this because um, we've had a number of shows talking about teachers and where they are in terms of their frustration with the system. Um, so much of this is about focus uh, and prioritization. And, and it's just universally the case in every school board meeting that very little time is spent on classrooms and academics, that yeah. it's on, you know, building needs, supplies, uh, generally for the school district, some of the politics, rules and regulations. But there's very little focus and discussion on the classroom needs of teachers. Uh, what are some of the things that your staff reports back that they hear from teachers about this prioritization issue? Uh, you have uh, described um, exactly the one of the core problems that we're trying to address, which is the amount of attention and support and then response to the needs that teachers have for the actual act of teaching in the classroom. What we've heard from teachers is that, um, well, if we focus on this sort of post-2020 um, um, era, so sort of coming back to in-person, um, uh, one of the things that we've heard is that in an era where, again, contrast it with most other professions, where the workplace and our expectations of the workplace are changing, and organizations across industries are increasing flexibility, right? Expanding the different ways in which professionals can come to work. In fact, in most school districts, it's an attempt to go as far backwards as possible yeah, and, yeah, and, and come back. And it and it's not going to work. So this is one of the things that that flexibility that actually the rest of us realize we actually need this and the world is changing is not being provided. The second is that even within the confines of, um, you know, just everyday uh, uh, in-person in learning, the needs for resources are different. So, you know, one of the categories that I mentioned before is um, classroom furniture, flexible seating. The reason that that as a category has really increased in the number of requests on our platform is that teachers know, hey, both for health reasons and lots of reasons, just mental uh, health and, and wellness for the students, I need to set up an environment that is different yeah. for students. Yeah. And they need different ways to sit together and different ways to sit apart safely. You know, uh, a superintendent uh, said to me, I heard this directly several weeks ago, that, you know, he'll be glad, and this echoes the point you were making earlier, Alex, he'll be glad when we go back to normal. But I gently said, well, you know, that 
that normal that you were talking about no longer exists. But uh, and and we we had some back and forth, and he conceded that there was a push for change in the wake of the pandemic, and he also conceded that some of it was good, but people are used to doing things the way they want to do it, particularly a bureaucracy that's been as entrenched in the school district. No, absolutely. And I think to, you know, just to make sure that we understand, we can roll the tape back to 2019 and understand that certainly before the pandemic, we were essentially already operating on a sort of starvation level. I mean, really the barest minimum of resources, right? And so- as was the case in a lot of other arenas uh, during the pandemic, you know, like a lot of folks said, we were all hit by the wave, the same wave, but we were in different sized ships, right? Uh, <laughs> all right, every, basically every kind of inequity was magnified, right? Every kind of inequity was magnified during this time. Let me ask you this, uh, and th- this is one last question, Alex. This is what I really want to know. Thinking of what we've been talking about, what needs to be done on a systemic level to ensure that teachers get the resources they need? And by the way, uh, and, you know, with all due respect to you and your board, so it, it puts you almost out of business. What, what, can, what, can, what can we do to ensure the system changes to meet teachers where they need to be? Yeah, I, I, I would be happy <laughs> to work ourselves out of uh, out of the need for existence. Right. Uh, and just to see that all teachers uh, have what they need. I think that there are a couple of different ingredients here. Right. None of which is alone uh, is sufficient on its own. Um, honestly, I would start with the nature of how we reward and promote this profession. Um there are a lot of reasons that um, teachers are underpaid. You made reference to it before. Uh, some of it is sexism, historical sexism, and the fact that this has historically been a female-dominated profession. That legacy continues, and uh, teachers are just dramatically underpaid. So this is one. Um, beyond that, in addition to that, um, not only changing how we respect and 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 pay teachers, because actually those two things go together. In terms of the mechanisms for providing resources to schools, we just have a system that systematically allocates resources away from some schools and t- towards other schools. You know, um, hmm. Ed Build um, published research that suggested that you know if you take if you divide the country schools into two equal groups in terms of the the number of students that they serve. Okay. So two sort of halves, but one is the sort of white population, the schools that serve majority white, and the other is um, schools that serve majority non-white students. You'll actually see, even though it's, you know, um, student for student, that, um, the white majority schools receive 23 billion in additional funding. Again, Mm. same number of students, despite serving the same number of students. Um, And so this is something that needs to be changed at the systemic level. Um, Just the allocation of resources, right? The provision of these rich environments that we were talking about even in the beginning of of this conversation. Yeah, well said. Alex Carrier, appreciate your work uh, as the CEO of Donors Choose. Thank you so much for joining us on What I Want to Know. 
Well, Kevin, thank you so much for uh, having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.